let us start by the end. Black uniforms, matching away team patches, new Nike shoes that just do it swooshes still vibrant white, purple shrouds, rolls of quarters and $5 bills in their pockets, duffel bags at their sides. Circumscribing themselves with these elements, in March 1997, 39 people in Rancho Santa Fe, California, ritually terminated their lives. They did so in waves, with each wave cleaning and tidying after the previous until all 39, including their founder and leader, lay dead in a multi-million dollar mansion in a posh San Diego suburb. Days after the suicides began, a former member, tipped off by his compatriots as to their intentions, stumbled into and then quickly out of the house. The rest is history, Heaven's Gate. To outsiders, it was a mass suicide. For insiders, it was a graduation. This act was the culmination of more than two decades of religious and social development of the group, a movement that took several names over its years. An excerpt from Benjamin E. Zeller's Heaven's Gate. Welcome to episode 250 of the Double Density Podcast with your host, Bernie Angelo. Double Density is your hope to tech tales and paranormal primers. Now, first things first, as you are aware, this is a bit of a special episode. So this is actually an episode that is three years in the making because I started the notes um, about this episode in April of 2020 and then sort of a half abandoned it and then came back to finish things when I realized that we could talk about um, tying this into Coast to Coast AM. So a little bit of a spoiler here. We're not actually pulling clips from a specific Coast to Coast AM episode. We're going to be talking about Coast to Coast AM episodes broadly and then sort of like zoom in a little bit more and a little bit less in certain places. Did your uh, working and looking at the, what are they called there? Our favorite cult, the Raelians, did that prompt you to like look into this? No, so I found Ben Zeller's uh, Heaven's Gate book um, in March or April. I just ordered it, I remember, and then lockdown happened and I started reading it. And so since then, it's been sort of sitting around, sort of like an albatross around my neck a bit, even though like <laughs> it's a delightful slash interesting slash depressing book. Yeah, because this whole Heaven's Gate thing is pretty depressing. It is. So this episode's subject matter is a little bit heavy. Uh, we're going to be covering Heaven's Gate. And the mass suicide. So if you're uncomfortable with this subject matter, then we suggest checking out uh, episode 249 if you want, or 248, or any other things uh, where we keep things a little bit lighter. And if you're ready, uh, let us move on, actually, to the episode, right? So we're going to be doing two things. We're going to be talking, firstly, about the Heaven's Gate movement itself and what I consider to be one of the most decisive elements that led to the fatal late 97 situation you know which then created this mass suicide and then how uh our uh, bell's radio uh program coast to coast AM played into that i didn't know that he had such an involvement with the hale bob comet and the heaven's gate people yep. and l almost like sort of leading them to believe in the ufo like, i mean they kind of were on their way there yes. anyway yeah but which so we'll much about the yeah. sort of the the setup as to which what the you know their belief system and things like that and yeah. then also how um that came into play with hale bob i feel educated about the history of <laughs> hale bob the history of heaven's gate and yeah. the history of our bell and his involvement and right at the top i do want to say brian did all the work on this episode <laughs> it's true and i'm just color commentary tonight 
It is. That is correct. And also, I want to thank my friend Ellie for uh, rereading this once more uh, with a fresh set of eyes um, in order to just sort of get through this. So let's talk about Heaven's Gate. So the religious movement uh, slash like cult started in 1974 in San Diego by two people, Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles. So Applewhite was born May 17th in 1931 in Spur, Texas. What a name. Great name. Uh, he grew up. He attended several universities and eventually enlisted in the uh, U.S. Army. And then uh, Bonnie Lou uh, Truesdale was born on August 29th, 1927, Houston, Texas. So she grew up, became a registered nurse, and was married to a Joseph Siegel Nettles in December 1949. So large life was largely pretty calm for the Nettles until the early 1970s when Bonnie began exploring her mystical side. She became interested in the occult, conducting seances in the home. So just imagine this, Angela. You married your wife for like couple of decades, right? And suddenly she veers into the occult and is soon to explain that she is also conducting seances in the home. Was she using a Ouija board? As far as I don't know, right? Because uh, seances and Ouija boards aren't exactly uh, one-to-one comparisons. So as far as I am aware, she did not. I wonder if, in her case, the exorcist nudged her into going into the occult and maybe i mean we'll be talking about the uh the climate of the early 1970s and onwards a little bit later um but yeah so i just mentioned you know connecting seances in the home kind of leads to a schism in the marriage right so her relationship with her husband joseph begins to suffer as she disclosed to him a number of concerning things yeah such as the fact that she believed that a 19th century monk named brother francis was in contact with her and often conveyed information to her that would freak me out as a, if a as a spouse if, if like let's say your 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 lovely wife comes up to you and says she's talking to some weird monk from a previous century who's also like divulging information to her right yeah i mean lottery numbers would be like top of the list yeah exactly well i mean if a 19th century monk is coming to you and telling and diverging information chances are it's only information about the past not the future but if he's able to communicate through this type of venue he can see all of time, like like oh, in the Watchmen, like, a, like Doctor right, Manhattan, like, Mister yeah, Manhattan, like Doctor Manhattan, yeah. Doctor Manhattan, correct? Yeah, yeah. Don't call him Mister. <laughs> no, please do not. So, Marshall Applewhite, on the other hand, spent his uh, school years uh, training to become a preacher man, before ultimately deciding upon getting a degree in music. So, during this time um, in the late forties, he married Anne Pierce, and the pair had two kids, Mark and Lane. So he was subsequently drafted by the Ar- the U.S. Army in 1954 and stationed in Austria, where he uh, was honorably discharged two years later. So Applewhite ultimately ended up teaching at the University of Alabama, losing his position after his affair with a male student came to light, right? So his wife Anne separated from him in 1965 when she found out about the affair, officially divorcing three years later so applewhite was a closet bisexual um who knew that he could not come out fully in his conservative environment and he also felt very frustrated with the relationships he entered with both in women and men and so in the early 70s uh these two figures crossed paths for the first time i wonder if his life would have been totally different if he lived now fully yeah and, i think and, i think it would have been right? different right i think a lot of his decisions um that sort of led to the, the inflection point of him meeting, you know, uh, Nettles uh, Holy would have been a little bit um, more different had he been uh, of a stronger peace of mind. I, know, I, in, I think that would be the best way of putting it. In our current climate, things are easier for people of different sexualities. It's not easy, but much, much different from what it was in that time in the 60s. 
Agreed, right? So I do think that like likely would have been a different scenario. The outcome, I don't know, would have been the same. But like we'll talk about a, a bit about that um, about the the seventies in general in a little bit. One of the more mystifying aspects of Applewhite and Nettle's relationship is that no one is quite certain how they actually met. According to Applewhite's own account, he and Nettles met in March 1972, as he was, quote, visiting a hospitalized friend when Mrs. Nettles entered the room and their eyes locked in a shared recognition of esoteric secrets. Other accounts suggest that Applewhite was institutionalized and Nettles worked in the facility he was spending time in. The issue at hand is that Marshall Applewhite's writing is prone to hyperbole, and a lot of his prose tries to underline the concept of fate, when in some instances, it was clearly not that. Nettles' own daughter claims that they met at a drama class. Per Wikipedia, quote, Applewhite later recalled that he felt like he had known Nettles for a long time, and concluded that they had met in a past life. She told him their meeting had been foretold to her by extraterrestrials, persuading him that he had a divine assignment. End quote. They soon entered in what could be best described as a folie deux period. Applewhite and Nettles shared thoughts and information with each other about all things cosmic and religious, and found themselves quite aligned with regards to a unified belief system. They would describe their grouping in various ways, as Guinea and Pig, as Bo and Peep, as The Two, or the UFO Two, and finally as T and Doe. Now onto the other subject of the episode. So I'm going to talk about Arthur William Bell. So he's born on June 17th, 1945 in Jacksonville, North Carolina. So he served in the U.S. Air Force for a while during the Vietnam War. Um, and then also, from what I remember in the Art of Talk book that I have over here, he also uh, did some broadcasting during his Army career. And then uh, pursued a broadcasting career starting in radio, moving into television, but mostly staying in the radio. Um, so he created coast to coast am which is a five night a week show uh covering the esoteric and the strange and uh one of the reasons he did that was because early on he started hosting a political show and then as uh not labeled coast to coast am so as he then reformatted things he found he was uh, having way more time talking about the weird stuff versus the political stuff and later on he would say during an interview i was crushingly bored talking about politics 30 hours a week with a voice like that of Art Bell, he had nowhere to go but art, but radio. I feel he has the quintessential radio voice. Yeah, I agree. I agree, it's, right? It's pretty much perfect for AM, especially with the... Like, we've talked about this before, the, the sort of warmth of AM radio and the way yeah. it makes you feel because of how it sounds and, and sort of how, like, we want our podcast to sort of sound like that, although much clearer <laughs> and more... Exactly. Like, a little bit clearer than that, but... We like having the uh, close to the microphone talk radio voice. Exactly. So, yeah. So, um, he uh, had a show called West Coast AM, uh, and he mostly spent his time in Vegas, right? Um, in the mid 70s and onwards, and of course, moving out and creating his own space for himself out Also, in a the great Nevada name of desert. a town, sort of like Spur, Texas, where he's like from Perumph, which is like Perump, a weird. Yeah. Perump. Yeah. It's like a weird sort of exclamation. Yeah, so originally he was doing Coast to Coast overnight, and then he was doing Coast to Coast AM, and he was realizing he had way more fun talking about conspiracy theories and things like that, right? So that is uh, something to note. Um, he also wrote several books that I'm staring at right now, including one that turned into The Day uh, the day After Tomorrow, right? Which is the oncoming global superstorm written by him and uh, I think it's Willie Strieber, if I'm not crazy. I'm still blown away that I didn't know that when I watched the movie. 
I haven't seen that movie in a long time. Uh, I the last time I saw it was in theaters, like in two thousand four, I think. Two thousand three, good old fashioned right? Roland Emmerich end of the world, exactly type stuff. a classic, right? I mean, that's what he does best. Yeah, exactly. So he wrote several books, and of course, he had a very distinctive storytelling style, and he had a very open minded approach when it came both to guests as well as callers. So I think that's something that is uniquely different. He operated his own board, right? So he didn't have a producer screening calls. He just put people on live. And one of the recurring jokes, of course, is that people call in saying they want to speak to Art Bell, not realizing that it's actually Art that they're speaking to. So he would troll them for a bit. And of course, ask them to lower the radio. Oh yeah. Classic, a classic one, right? So his enduring, uh, you know, his enduring influence on late night talk radio continues, I think, to captivate audiences. And I think a lot of that can be seen in even shows like ours, right? Where we, um, discuss the paranormal in different kinds of ways that maybe was not an option, um, through more traditional avenues. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so Art died April 13th, 2018, and uh, Coast to Coast AM for a while has been, uh, you know, hosted by a walking living meme known as George Nori. What do you think about him, really? He's... I don't, I don't like him. Let's be honest here. Let's he, say. He's Garbage. not the same personality as Art. He's got he, none. So basically what happens, and it's it's been the same case for a while, is that, and I've li- unfortunately listened to a lot of George Norrie in the year, during the last like decade and a half, almost two decades, is that he is giving questions by a producer and doesn't actually have in-depth interview skills. He won't pick up on things that surprise him. You know, if a guest says something particularly bonkers, he will not follow up with that. He'll just continue on his list, right? So there's a lot of that going on. And a lot of the people that they have on it, I don't know if I mentioned this in an earlier episode, but these days it seems like they have a list of like approved callers that they use um, more or less. And this is a legend, of course, but it seems like it's really just gone downhill. He's not quick on the uptake when it comes to sort of flying by the seat of his pants and changing things up. No, and on the least. And so it's made for very difficult radio, I think, personally speaking. <laughs> And I'm sure it's a little more polished, I guess, with him on there, right? Like in terms of the, the yes. part of the I mean, charm like of coast to coast. Yeah, yeah it's a screener it, exactly. and things like that, right? He has a whole apparatus working for him. In He's not working somewhere. from a trailer, like a two-part no. trailer in the desert of Las Vegas. Of Nevada. So I don't, I don't want to sound ageist or anything, but like his hair dye job is also pretty pretty bad. I'm not going to like lie to you. For it's radio, it's okay, though. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. But anytime he pops up on one of those like uh, paranormal convention posters, it's just it's rough. Thing. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. Most of those paranormal convention posters are rough. Remember when we uh, discussed that weird one a few weeks ago, taking place in uh, in Sonoma, Sedona, Sedona. Sonoma is a Mac uh, operating system, and maybe Correct. a place in California. I think it is also a place. <laughs> yes, I know. Yeah. But not the weird site of a uh, you know a uh, paranormal adjacent conference no not at all it's lots of tech people going and looking at trees heaven's gate wasn't always known by the name heaven's gate in fact heaven's gate didn't actually carry that name for most of its active years for most of the cult's existence they used the names human individual metamorphosis and total overcomers anonymous from the cult's inception in 1974, Nettles and Applewhite spent a lot of time proselytizing in both a group setting as well as one-on-ones. They joined meetings of established New Age groups and spoke of their dreams and desires to create a new sort of utopia. Initially, they didn't manage to pick up a lot of recruits. For example, one of their first converts, a woman named Sharon, only stuck around for a few months before her family managed to get her back. During their time together, Sharon actually allowed the pair to use her credit card, which created a lot of problems down the line. And eventually, um, through a series of events, it was revealed that Applewhite actually had a prior 
a warrant out for his arrest, and he served some time in jail in the mid-1970s. After his release, they went hard in the paint during those first few years, gradually picking up dozens of members. They started a relentless membership drive, visiting all kinds of places where people gathered to spread their message. They also would visit various professors and other professionals individually to see if they would join. Spoiler, none of them did. And then they really screwed things up. Applewhite and Nettles asked their adherents to split up and start spreading the word of their faith all around the country, leading to a hilarious situation where a lot of members didn't even know where the Heaven's Gate camp had moved to. Adherents were used to camping outside in various places, including national parks during this era, which made locating them even more difficult. Some members even resorted to asking local reporters who interviewed them if they knew where Nettles and Applewhite were calling home. Getting a proper headcount during this time was difficult. Anywhere from a dozen to a few hundred to nearly a thousand. It was all up in the air, proverbially. So, Angela, let's talk about uh, the Heaven's Gate belief system. So, I, I feel like we need to talk a bit about how um, the UFO 2, right, how Nettles and Apple kind of came to the their sort of uh, doctrine. Um, so they would continually produce new aspects of their doctrine spontaneously when the moment called for it. So, for example, if they were talking to a crowd and they had uh, a question or something that spurred on, uh, you know, a yes-and attitude uh, to the <laughs> doctrine of Heaven's Gate, then that is... Improvised cultism. Exactly. Exactly right. So in their approach to the religious tenets touches on a lot of postmodernist thoughts. So um, some people have called it postmodern bricolage, right? Weaving together Christian and New Age ideas and notions to synthesize a set of beliefs that are, on top of that, of course, the yes and philosophy, you know, improv style of like bringing new tenets in. So I feel like now we need to talk about the second caveat, which is what you were mentioning before, is that the 1970s were a very fertile time for the New Age movement in the U.S., right? So a lot of weird stuff was happening. So you're talking about the exorcist before, but there was a pushback. I do believe, um, you know, there, there's an erosion in trust after the Vietnam War, right, because it was raging into the early 70s. And people who formerly would turn to established religion in order to make sense of the world actually began to yearn for a set of beliefs that could help them answer more and more existential questions that perhaps the religions of the time, you know, primarily Protestant and Catholic, could not answer properly. Just finding a different way to find your place in the world, really. Yeah, a different order system. Like, we talked about this before, about how religion is a source of comfort for many. Some were good, some were bad. It's, you sound like the old uh, Canadian PSA, drugs. Ask your mom or ask your dad. Drugs, drugs, drugs. The, the the my favorite Canadian like PSAs they're not even really PSAs but the 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 heritage ones there oh at the moment yeah the, of course and the one with the do you ever see the one talking about the the house hippo the little tiny hippo I feel and like I have it's been it forever was, and it was I think something to do with understanding and knowing what's real and what's not I'll look it up and see if I can post it in the show notes okay. So anyways, suffice it to say, you know, the 1970s were a really weird time for uh, neo-religious movements and cult movements in order to be, to be formed, right? Um, a very fertile ground. A lot of people were beginning to break out of a lot of traditional thought patterns. Yeah, because so when there's so much going on, right, right after the war, was 
Was everybody out of Vietnam by this point, or were there still? I mean, they're on their way out in the early seventies, okay. yeah, right. And then this is also the same decade. You got to remember things like Jonestown, right? Like the Jonestown massacre happened okay. in the seventies. Like, there's a lot going on. Some foreshadowing you know. there. Uh, yeah, no, I think it was a little less confrontational uh, okay. in the sense of like, uh, you know. So I think the big differentiator there is at Jonestown, there were a lot of people who did not want to pass away, versus everyone in Heaven's Gate, the thirty-nine people had an were inclination towards passing fully away. believing in what they were doing. Yeah. I mean, like, listen, like, Heaven's Gate, since its inception in the early 70s, like, attracted a bunch of, like, really weird people. They were often, you know, known as, like, quest seekers, people looking to find more meaning. So this is, like, the weird paradox of their belief system. So a lot of these were cobbled together from tenets of existing established religions and, like, various offshoots, members, um, pre-joining, crafted their own religious beliefs. So all of these quest seekers already had a kind of like system in place of like, I'm taking a bit from Catholicism, I'm taking a bit from Hinduism, I'm taking a bit from, you know, whatever pieces. And then they they bring this together um, because Nettles and Applewhite had a, a sort of like open philosophy to religion, which is weird because it almost creates this dual track where like they allow people to believe what they wanted when they started out, but also had a firm set of beliefs as to what they like wanted them to believe too. Yeah. And... So, <laughs> Were they equal in creating the doctrine, or was one better than the other in terms of, not necessarily better, but one had more say than the other? Or was it like, because they seem yeah, to be so a lockstep. Like, like Bonnie Nettles definitely had more, was more of the, uh, the mystic of the group, uh, versus Applewhite being more of the talker of the group. Okay. But they, I mean, they both, they both did in equal parts, um, forge a doctrine, right? So, okay. um, Academics have actually spent a lot of time trying to figure out whether, like, Heaven's Gate was fundamentally in a Christian or a New Age camp. So before I'd mentioned the the Heaven's Gate book by Ben Zeller, right? So he falls squarely on the side of believing that the movement to be an evangelical Protestant Christianity with a fair amount of New Age tenets sprinkled in instead of, like, the other way around, which some people believe that this was a New Age religion boring heavily from Christian influences. So I want to look at a few things what they actually believe in now that we're yes. here, right? So Yes, because um, so some of these are... are up there in terms of my favorite of the yeah. <laughs> uh, so, like, uh, nuttier side yeah. of paranormal, especially Absolutely. with ufology. So Apple, uh, Apple White Nettles both were firm believers in uh, an extra, extraterrestrial aspect of Christianity's existence, right? So one of their core beliefs was that members would both be chemically and biologically transformed into ETs, um, and then they would then board a spaceship and be taken to their ultimate destination of heaven, which we'll be discussing that shift as to how they got there a little bit later, right? So this is a concept that they labeled. Yeah, well, it's sort of a bizarre, like, uh, aspect. It's like a weird transubstantiation that you find in Catholicism. Yeah, almost, except way more literal, right? You know, like, when yes. you get up there, uh, when you're taking communion... Well, it is literal, just... right? Like, it's literal. Yeah. Communion is, li- like... True, I remember trying the, to explain it. Yeah, body. I was trying to explain it to my daughter, because we were at a church, and, like, we're not religious. They haven't been... Like, they had their baptism, but not, not anything else. And we were at a church... And I was explaining to the that and what transubstantiation was. And she says, well, so are they cannibals? That was her question. That was her takeaway. I mean, it's not an awful question to ask, right, as a teenager. Like, what are they trying to impart upon you if this is the yeah. literal body and blood of Christ? Yeah, she's, uh, well, I, you know, my daughter. She's uh, my own little Carl Sagan. <laughs> so this concept of, you know, transformation, literal transformation, uh, is, is what they were uh, then labeled the next level, right? So from its inception... Um, Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles made self-transformation a cornerstone of their belief system, right? So this New Age-centered system is like of a personal journey, right? So it, it kind of – you believe in it because it's going to literally transform you. And it makes it easier for adherents to believe in the next part of the doctrine. And that one is that Heaven's Gate believes in the ancient astronaut theory. Uh, our friend 
Eric Von Daniken. Exactly. So Eric Von Daniken and Zachary Stitchin, whose Earth Chronicle books are staring right at me in my bookcase. I'm gonna we're gonna tackle that one day, but I don't know if I have the the power to read all of those books in one sitting, or rather one uh, period of time. But yeah, the concept of the ancient astronaut suggests that ETs landed early in man's existence and helped guide their evolution. Right. Well, there's no way we built the pyramids. So that is when we talked about this is how that's like a pseudo racist comment is that the non whites got helped by the ETs because they were not good at math. Yeah, that's that's sort of the underlying situation there. Yeah. Now, the degree to which the ETs uh, applied that help is up for debate since there's like uh, quite literally little evidence to support none. any of this happening. There's none. There's none. Correct. Yeah. Uh, they also believe in the concept of walk-ins or the ability of ETs, extraterrestrial beings, be they you know aliens, um, more classically angels, if you believe certain biblical stories, to take over a human body for a period of time in order to advance humanity. Right. Oh, I thought you were referencing back to the time we worked together and we have walk-ins in our office. <laughs> right, instead of booked, yeah, booked appointments. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the worst, right, Brian? It's people showing up. I hit a pop-in. I hit a pop-in. Mm-hmm. I got my afternoon in front of me. I don't want to talk to you, you know? Yeah, leave us alone. So a lot of the writings uh, in the Heaven's Gate Doctrine were solidly built upon Bible teachings, too. So Nettles and Applewhite came up with a lot of other doctrine, you know, um, celibacy, salvation through a UFO to get you to heaven. Uh, also, like, some psychic power stuff um, through how they decided to interpret the, the Bible, right? So as of 1976, so this is early on, they banned sexual relations and drug use. So members engaging either or both would be immediately kicked out. And in the Ben Zeller book, he actually references that, that uh, certain members were caught with the reefer and sent right out. They were really picking on the worst parts of the stuff, yeah, like, yeah. like the no fun things. Exactly right. Um, so the the other weird attachment, I think this is like very Scientology adjacent, is that they were also fans of boring terms from science fiction. Wait, wait. Scientology borrows from science fiction? <laughs> Surprise. It's like, like what, you're next going to tell me it was created by a science fiction writer? In On a Boat, yeah, who has yeah. ties to like the OSI and stuff. Great. Um, Pre-CIA. So, for you know, a prime example of this is something I referenced in the intro, right, is the away team armbands. So, you know, um, that is taken from Star Trek. Yeah, and there's an odd irony there with Star Trek, right? Like the connection, you know, about um, Nichelle Nichols' brother, right? Yeah, so he was one of the 39. Yeah, it's, it's an odd connection. So they also, so Heaven's Gate, during the time they were on Earth, tried to shape their group socially, much like uh, like a spaceship flight crew, right? So there were pods and crews, and crews had specific tasks to do um, by various uh, team members leading up to their minute departure. So similarly, their uniform style of dressing reflected their love of science fiction of the spaceship structure. Not to mention, at one point, they actually built a structure out of recycled tires that they called Spaceship Earth. So that's something to think about. Well, there's another, um, like, it's a connection to your friends that are aliens. Yeah, exactly. Well, so if you take a look at YouTube, you can actually find a lot of the goodbye videos that we'll talk about eventually. They're not in uniform there. They're wearing their civvies. Okay. but Those uh, sound like they'd be really depressing. They are and they aren't. So I've sat through a few. And it's weird knowing what I know watching those and then understanding that these people were filled with hope. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. it's a very strange paradox of, like, knowing that they're going to pass on, um, you know, whatever this mortal run is. But they seem not necessarily excited about it, but enthusiastic about the possibility of what awaits them. So, I, they truly yeah, it's, believe. it's tough. Yeah. Um, you know, but, like, when they pass, for example, like, they all were wearing the the black shirts, the sweatpants, the Nike shoes, the mm-hmm. away team batch, uh, arm, arm band, sorry, you know, uniform dress. 
Uniform, a highly specialized niche speak, uniform belief system. Um, as time wore on, of course, the people in Heaven's Gate were suddenly, not so suddenly, asked to leave a lot of their um, cobbled together systems to the wayside in order to buy into more and more what the Heaven's Gate leaders were selling. Mm-hmm. So then we hit the 80s. So a lot of people say that uh, Heaven's Gate lost a lot of its heart when body nettles had passed with cancer in 1985, right? So um, nettles, as I was saying before, acted uh, more as like the forward thinking of the UFO too, uh, interpreting science and bringing more dogma into the mix as Apple White continued to preach to adherence, right? So that's what I was talking about before when you asked me that question is that definitely nettles was more of the strategist, Apple White more of the executioner slash speaker. Yeah, he had more of a flair to, to be able to talk to people, whereas she was behind the scenes getting things organized and kind of rearranging various religions to meet <laughs> exactly, their yeah. needs. The the tenant cauldron, as it were. She was stirring yeah. the, you know, if uh, we were to describe it that way. So she actually lost an eye to cancer in 1983, and her doctor revealed that the cancer was eating the rest of her body. So she and Applewhite mistrusted that diagnosis, and they firmly believed at that point, and like... I think this is one of the sadder things is that they believe they could not die, right? So this is kind of the the guiding uh, tenet they used in order to see what we could do for now. So the other cult member, the cult's other members thought the same too, right? Until she had died on June nineteenth, nineteen eighty five. So this that kind must, of left yeah. that must um, shake the foundation of well, people's belief. Exactly right. So that's a huge inflection point in terms of where the cult was going because of the fact that you lose one of your cult leaders earlier than you're supposed to. What does that mean for the doctrine itself, right? So Heaven's Gate became more fatalistic after Nettles' passing, right? So Applewhite shifted their thinking and believing that their physical bodies would be able to ascend to the next level. So I was saying before, that's kind of the end point they reached on because originally they thought that they were able to, you know, ascend to the next level organically. But then the whole belief about transforming to an extraterrestrial and then boarding a spaceship, et cetera, came out of this period of time. And that... Uh, their bodies at this point, after 1985, were merely vessels for the soul, and the soul itself would be able to attain the next level to escape Earth, right? So like you were saying, this kind of created an issue for Heaven's Gate members. In saying that the UFO 2 could not die, and then dying, this demonstrated a great big old hole mm-hmm. in their dogma, right? So Applewhite needed to incorporate this information to their doctrine. So he was just saying that at this point, Nettles' death is an example of the ability of the soul as a, using the body as a vessel to leave, and that her, quote, broken down body, unquote, was left behind, that she was waiting for them to join her eventually, right? So it's clear that Applewhite sensed this loss in a profound way because the two had started this religion. They had uh, claimed to have known each other for centuries before this. And she supplied a lot of the strategy and thinking of the mixing of the cauldron, right? So now Applewhite left his own devices. Firstly, has to overcome this initial problem of what do you do when your co-founder passes? Uh, and then what do you do when a lot of your doctrine relies on the fact that you say you cannot die? Yeah. Well, these type of people often make the best of these situations, and he sort of did. <laughs> yes, by becoming more dictatorial in his management style, right? So he emphasized the notion that more than ever, his students needed his leadership, um, which is like bad news in a lot of these uh, uh, cult situations. Typical cult leader now, right? Like he's... She- what Bonnie was doing, she was keeping them sort of, uh, pardon the pun, but grounded. And then yes. he decided to, in his, you know, in his role as the talker, that's what he can do best. So talk to these people and convince them how much they need him. 
Yeah, exactly. So he kind of created a str- like a stranglehold on the group. That was like a, a very much a believer butt out situation where like you either buy in or you leave now. Yeah. And a lot of these people there didn't really necessarily want to leave. No, exactly. So it was just like this weird situation where the pivot is very hard to swallow in some cases. In mm. other cases, people um, had a much more open belief system and were willing to to more easily incorporate a lot of these changes of believing that you're you're not physically leaving the earth, but now your soul is a you know leaving the earth and your bodily vessel will remain here. Yeah, exactly. Paranormal hucksters have existed for centuries. From mediums claiming to speak to the dead, to those who claim to be able to give folks elixirs to prolong their lives, to those who claim to have Bigfoot hair in their possession, and most recently, to those who sell apps to help get in touch with extraterrestrial beings. Folks have always been trying to figure out how to monetize humankind's desire to know for a long, long time. Remote viewers like Ed Dames and Courtney Brown, who we will be discussing more in depth later, fell squarely into that long tradition. As mentioned during last month's Coast to Coast AM episode, Ed Dame spent considerable time designing and hawking course materials aimed to teach people how to become remote viewers. Similarly, he also offered workshops to help people achieve that goal. Courtney Brown was charging $3,000 ahead in the 1990s for people to attend workshops at his Atlanta-based Farside Institute. I'm offering this explanation up now so that the discussion later on about the events of late 1996 into March 1997 are understood to be one of continual economic benefit to certain parties. There's more money to be made in claiming something supernatural and extraterrestrial than in claiming that it's nothing but drafts and space debris. Everyone's in it for themselves in the paranormal world. Even the benevolent ones seek the ego boost of being known when offering their evidence and or services. It's the idea of information as power. They're always dangling a little bit more just behind a door, either in the form of a paywall or some other way of belief. Brian, do you think Applewhite was a paranormal huckster? I don't think so. I think he was an adherent, right? So unlike, you know, Ed Dames, Courtney Brown, I do believe that he was a diehard um, doer. A lot of the times they were living in poverty in the 70s. Like there wasn't a lot. Like I, I mentioned before, they were camping in national parks, right? There was never this huge cushion of money necessarily right until the end. But a lot of the times they were living hand to mouth. So he wasn't doing this to gain money or fame or anything he just wanted control over a group of people basically and and people that wanted to believe what he believed for i i think ultimately he just wanted comfort in knowing other people were able to follow him and believe what he believed so i believe fundamentally and this is like of course alleged right because we don't know how he thought about this but i do believe a lot of this control was in response to his being bisexual and not being able to actually talk about it Openly, I believe that he could not control society, so he carved out his own form of society in order to control it. And like going back to what we said before, if this was today and he was around today, he would have been able to have a much more open relationship with his sexuality that he couldn't do back then. Correct. And also, I think times are different, right? Like as much as we talk about how in the 2020s, um, there is this sort of like resurgence in new agey type of thinking i also don't believe that the ground is as fertile as it was the 1970s to start a cult right because i do believe that like cults are on the decline let's be honest here like there's not a a lot of them around compared to the last couple of decades necessarily right so i do believe that we're um you know we're marshall applewhite and bonnie nettles to be alive now and trying to start heaven's gate it'd be an mlm it wouldn't be like a yeah so that's that's the cults we have now is people trying to start their own businesses and become successful and 
in that way. And when you see what MLMs do and all their get-togethers, that's cult-like, but in a yeah. different way. Yeah, I agree. I, I, it's also like they're. It's also like nakedly capitalistic. Yes, they're they're there to make money, right? Like, and the people at the top of the cult are making a lot of money, but never call an MLM a cult. No, exactly. Uh, despite the fact that like a lot of them are based, we've talked about this before in Salt Lake City, right? So it's just it's this weird kind of like, and I, I I do agree that like the new cult is is a lot of these MLM companies because it's easy to buy in, but then you, um, as in many cults, right? You become financially ruined for ninety nine percent of the people. People want to become financially independent. They want to run their own business. And these types of cults seem to really reel them in, unfortunately. Agreed. So at one point, let's actually, let's talk about names right now. So one of the things that makes Heaven's Gate interesting is that they, at one point, took on new six-letter names ending with Audi, O-D-Y. So in Applewhite's mind, members renaming themselves created one more way in which members were transforming, right? So we were talking before about the stranglehold. This kind of points to that. So ex-members have given two possible reasons as to how they landed on this idea. I'm going to quote from Ben Zeller's Heaven's Gate book for the first one. So uh, Mercody and Surfcody, who were present at the renaming and therefore serve as reliable witnesses as to how it was initially explain indicate that Audi meant child of God under Nettles's and Applewhite's rationale OD served as a contraction to represent of God and the Y functioning as a diminutive much like Jimmy versus James or Jim um, accepting the new aim ending in Audi therefore may uh, marked Heaven's Gate members as adherents uh, you know as children of God I feel like they're really stretching that but I guess you got to do what you got to do so, okay, so the, the second more, one is more linguistic in nature. So in the era where Nettles and Applewhite were going by toe and, uh, Doe and T, they merged into the suffix Doti, which phonetically then came into Audi. So certain adherents believe that this method, using the root of the founders' names as an anchor, tied themselves even more closely to the group through the statement convention. So either su- theory of suggestion as to why still um, marked a measure of, of control over their flock, their proverbial flock. I thought Doe and T had something to do with music. Right, like they were, B it does and C, <laughs> correct? If, if, right, and, you know, like that's in the in in. I don't know which languages use them because when I I learned solfege right when I did music and it was never T, it was C, but that's besides the point. But C is, I guess, it's confusing because C is actually B in the. What well, what do you call that? Like the American way of saying the, scale, music? the English yeah, the way, scale. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. That's besides the point. So they were B and C. Yes. So, or children of God, right? So there's a lot of like really interesting um, discussions to be had around the linguistic nature of the etymology of the, this, the, you know, the suffix of Audi. Yeah. Switching gears, talking, coming back to talking about Art Bell. Um, it can sometimes be really hard for me to reconcile the veneration I have of the man and some of the sketchier aspects of his history. And I'm not talking personal stuff because that's not even things I want to discuss about his multiple wives and some weird circumstances surrounding that. If you want, you can go ahead and Google Art Bell Wives to find out more about that. But I'm talking about more of the on-air stuff. So one of the largest marks against him, I think, is his uh, August 15th, 1996 interview with William Luther Pierce or Bill Pierce, who wrote the especially racist and anti-Semitic Turner Diaries. So CBS's 60 Minutes show had a reported uh, a report a week that earlier talking about Pierce and, and his belief system. Um, you know, well, like I was just saying, well, Art was, had been married several times, uh, including a woman of color. Uh, listening to parts of this episode can be like a really tough sell because of the fact that I actually sat through that episode. You did. Um, 
and it was not good. Not good in the least. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so looking up William Luther Pierce, it's uh, Wikipedia says he was an American neo-Nazi white supremacist and far-right political advocate. So not a good guy. No, not someone you want to have around at a barbecue. Yeah. So, yeah. So, like, listen, like Art Bell, first and foremost, is a showman. But, you know, it can work well when it comes to more absurd topics, right? Like Bigfoot, um, crop circles, and the like. So a lot of conspiracy culture stuff. Yeah. Um, but not when it comes to, like, things like discussing race. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know? Because listening to the episodes we have had, the people that call in are uh, not necessarily like on the ball with certain things no i mean like the the knowledgeable caller with the head on their shoulders is, is a rarity right because yeah this is crank pure crank radio yeah it's people in the middle of the night listening to something of the paranormal and calling in with their experience with bigfoot who came to abduct them into a ufo exactly and used a ouija board in order to contact the ufo and bigfoot and so then as soon art- as you say that art gets very upset exactly um so one of the things is that Art has stated this multiple times during the episodes is his whole philosophy is that he had a smart audience and that they should make up their own minds about both guests and callers veracity, right? So while I want to actually believe that, you and I, Angelo, both know the last few decades of American popular discourse surrounding things like, I don't know, like politics, climate change, um, prove this is largely not to be true. <laughs> we literally just said he did not have a smart audience. <laughs> exactly. Right? Now it's kind of, and That's, I think unfortunately it's the case, right? Like I, when I was writing this, I was thinking about like people who listen to the Joe Rogan podcast for, you know, general information as they're an outlet of like learning things. I used to listen to the Joe Rogan podcast until he kind of, uh, I don't know. It was like it yeah, became but were you treating this as a source thing. of entertainment or information, right? Like, there's t- these, complete the- entertainment, and I liked it more when he had comedians on, and not. I mean, the, actually, the first time I listened to it because somebody on a different podcast mentioned he had Stephen Greer on, and I listened to that episode. Oh, the man who runs the app to contact the, the extraterrestrials. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, a weird episode. So I think there there is a problem though, right? In that, like. Coast to Coast AM should have been labeled as entertainment, but unfortunately was treated as a source of information for a lot of people. Like, holy. Yeah. yeah. Like, the quote-unquote information they picked up there was their worldview a lot of the time that was shaped by, you know, this five-night-a-week person. It's the same as listening to Rush Limbaugh, right? Like, Rush Limbaugh wasn't... And I'm I'm picking on Rush Limbaugh, firstly, because he's an awful person, but secondly, also because of the fact that he also had political radio going on during the day, yeah. uh, during this time period, right? So a lot of people were treating that as informational instead of educational, because a lot of Rush Limbaugh's stuff, his, a lot of his uh, unfortunate, uh, awful rhetoric was opinion-based, not fact-based. Yeah. So a lot of people say that Bell's approach... You know, they would point to the fact that he would much prefer a guest proverbially hang themselves with their own lies and inconsistencies versus uh, him tackling them head on. Um, and some point to his like soft line of questioning. I mean, he did argue with his guests sometimes. For sure. But it was it was sort of a rarity. He could tell that he was having fun. One of the first Coast to Coast AM episodes that we covered, the woman, right? Remember the mysterious woman? Yeah, she was great. He loved her. That's what I'm saying. He loved her, but he also could tell that maybe she was full of it. But he he went with it. He and and also there was real no harm with her being a phony. No, exactly right. And once again, entertainment on information. So in those instances, callers would do the heavy lifting on Art's behalf when it came to challenging guests. And sometimes it worked, and sometimes it just it didn't. Right. So like I was saying before, like it was rare, but like you were saying, it did happen that Art would call BS on a guest 
it happened occasionally. One of the telltale signs, actually, I think I pointed this out to you, Angela, was that Art, when Art didn't love a guest, what he would do is he would dump the interview subject earlier and just go to open lines a lot yes. quicker, right? Yeah. And we've, we haven't had that really happen with that many of the guests. Was no, there? I mean, we've been kind of cherry-picking the yeah. episodes, right? So Yeah. So, like, listen, like, Art Bell wasn't a perfect person, and I'll be the first to admit that. Like, once again, source of entertainment versus information, the kind of person that he was, wasn't exactly aligned with my belief system. Or, you know, uh, if I were to have a five-night-a-week um, radio show, I don't know if I would uh, put that much trust in my listenership. Mm-hmm. That's just me, right? So if you look at Art's show as a source of entertainment and not one of news, then it makes a lot of sense. But not Definitely. everyone did that. Exactly. Members of Heaven's Gate adhered to the notion of worldly dualism, which explained how they could take in information from a variety of seemingly unrelated sources to synthesize their worldview. In particular, some in Heaven's Gate did believe that they were part of a larger web that was dubiously labeled conspiracy culture and led the cult towards a more fatalistic worldview in the early 1990s. In these instances, there was an expectation of a governmental visit, much like the ones at Waco and Ruby Ridge, as these quote-unquote gatekeepers of knowledge prepared for their next steps. Conspiracy culture thinking also gives credence to many different ways of viewing the end times, including the idea that an unknown entity, in this case space aliens, but for other people like William Cooper it was Zionists, or New World Order, is the final evil, hell-bent on taking down civilization and wholly controlling it. As avenues for alternative information opened up in the 1990s, so did the ways in which Heaven's Gate members viewed the world. The conspiracy culture that bloomed in these times meant that the fringes were far more free to share their views on various topics, without fearing as much backlash as before, as this sort of stigmatized information found more willing homes. Heaven's Gate began airing a satellite television show and selling videotapes with their messages on them. They soon began to be interested in Art Bell's five-night-a-week radio show, Coast to Coast AM, which Heaven's Gate member T. Lottie stumbled upon sometime in 1996 and shared that info with fellow members soon thereafter. At its most popular, Coast to Coast AM was broadcast from over 500 radio stations to purported 15 to 20 million listeners a night. A link to Bell's website soon appeared on the Heaven's Gate website, as did a link to astronomer Chuck Schrammick's infamous Hale Bob companion page. These two literal links are important to understand what is to follow. This is the saga of how the dominoes came to fall with regards to the infamous rumor of an alien spaceship trailing Hale-Bob. All right, so Heaven's Gate had five major membership drives. So this is what I was telling you before, Angelo. You know, the initial periods of mm-hmm. the early 70s up until 76, then they had enough adherence for a little while. And then in 88, um, three years after Nettles' death, they started producing a booklet and sent it out to numerous New Age enders in order to pick up a lot of new members. Um, and then in 91, 92, they started to produce a series of satellite broadcasts and also sell VHS tapes. Um, but the VHS tapes weren't that expensive, so it wasn't really like a grifter kind of move. It really was an informational kind of groove. And you bought many of them. <laughs> yes. Yeah. A child me uh, stole my parents' credit card back when we only had, uh, you know, antennas yeah. to watch TV. Perfect timing. And then, so in 1994, they placed an ad in a national, in national newspaper seeking new members. And then finally, in 1997, shortly before the suicides, when the group used the internet, and we'll talk about that in a bit, to reach new potential conference. So th- through these five membership drive periods, the number of adherents was 39 by the time they started their group suicide sessions, starting on March 22nd, 1997, and ending four days later on March 26th. 
So people died all like they they were people were there were dead people in the same building as the living people. Correct. For a yes. while. So there were groups. They were groups. Okay. So the, the the first group would pass, and then the second group would do some cleanup, and then pass, and then the third group would do that, and then pass, and that was it. it. Sounds awful, but I mean, this is what they wanted. So during the cult's endgame period, as I mentioned in the intro, they moved into some pretty swanky digs, right? So in October 1996, as they were discovering Art Bell, which we'll talk about in a sec, they also moved into a 9,200-square-foot mansion in Santa Fe, California, that they dubbed the Monastery. From there, they installed um, bunk beds. Mm, the famous bunk, bunk beds. So here's where our two story tracks intersect in concrete ways. So we're going to start talking about where Heaven's Gate and Art Bell's Coast to Coast AM show co-mingle for disastrous results, all due to the Hale-Bopp comment. Do you remember seeing the Hale-Bopp? I do. I remember the news. I remember seeing it and thinking it was really interesting and kind of cool. And I'd never seen anything like that in the sky before. Yeah. Yeah, same. I remember all the news reports and stuff too, right? Because it had lasted, what, like a year almost? It was in like, the sky a long time. Like faint to seem to gone. Yeah. So let's talk about the comet's history then in that case, right? So the Hale-Bopp comet, also designated as C uh, backslash 1995-01, was discovered in 1995 by a pair of astronomers, Alan Hale and Thomas. So this is a bit of a weird one because Alan Hale and Thomas Bopp discovered the same, like the same, the same moving celestial body at the exact same time. So um, Alan Hale was an astronomer by trade. And okay. so he discovered this. And then Thomas Bopp was an amateur. Um, so there's a little bit of a weird skirmish between two different cultures, right? So um, Hale spotted it from his backyard in Cloudcroft, New Mexico, while uh, 1,200 miles away in Arizona, Thomas Bopp independently saw the comet with binoculars. So they elected to name it Hale Bopp in their honor, the comet becoming one of the brightest celestial objects of the 20th century, as we were talking about before, yeah. easily visible for almost a year. Exactly. Great names that they had, too. Exactly. Like, it's, it's a nice worse. like hyphenated kind of thing, right? So, yeah, and, and one syllable each, so it's perfect. Yeah, exactly. So it uh, approached the sun in 1997, contributing valuable insights to comet research and highlighting the crucial role of amateur astronomers in scientific discovery. Luckily, it didn't hit us. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, though the, uh, the chances of that happening are more and more concrete as time continues. Well, eventually... All right, let's talk about Coast to Coast Ham. Let's talk about November 14th, 1996. So, Art, welcome. So, um, astronomer Chuck Schrammick takes a CCD image of the Hale Balcon, which is just a, a fancy way of saying like a nice image, right? Yeah. One of the background stars in the image uh, displays some spikes, giving a Saturn like look. Shortly oh, after boy. that, um, Chuck shows up on Art's Bell Show and announces, uh, this SLO, Saturn-like object, to the world. So the rumor spread on the internet that this object was a huge spacecraft, three times larger than planet Earth. That's a big spaceship. I agree. Like you're bumping into things at that point. Exactly, right? So the uh, original image is compared to the Palomar Sky Survey, and the SLO, the Saturn-like object, is identified as star SAO. 141894. So enter Courtney Brown, who we were talking about before, who's already teeing up the idea of the Hale Bob companion existing after he and others he had claimed on the air remote view the object and claimed that there was also radio waves coming off of it. I have a question for you. Yes. What kind of scientist was Courtney Brown? He was not a scientist. We'll talk about what he was actually in a. In well, a little he bit. was a scientist. There's a science in his name. He's a political scientist. Well, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so he and his Farstight Institute colleague, Prudence Calabrese, seemed almost insistent on the existence of this craft, making this point quite clearly on the January 16th, 1997 episode of Coast to Coast AM. So Brown, 
A professor belonging to the political science department of Emory University was no stranger to the world of the paranormal, right? So you just mentioned he was a doctor of the social sciences. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, science. Science is there in the name. So he and Ed Dames are almost as bonkers one another because uh, Ed Dames talked about remote viewing Satan and Courtney Brown talked about remote viewing the life of Jesus Christ. So a bit of a weird mix there, right? He also claimed to understand via remote viewing that several episodes of Star Trek had actually been written with the assistance of aliens. That is one of the, like, of all the crazy stuff we've looked at, this is high up there on the lines of craziness. It is uh, bad. It's bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, Courtney Brown is a bit of a wuss, Angelo. Why would you say that? So, in a piece published on September 9th, 1996, Scott O. Lillianfield, an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Emory, mentioned how he had challenged Brown's psychic abilities. And I'm going to quote from the letter they had written, or the piece that, that Lillianfield had written. So, I propose that Brown appear at a meeting of my undergraduate seminar in science and pseudoscience and psychology, where my students and I would subject him to a simple controlled experiment, examining his capacity to remotely view stimuli in an adjacent room. I assured him that he would have considerable input regarding the selection of stimulus materials and agreed to publicize the results of this test in both Emory newspapers regardless of his outcome. But Courtney Brown categorically refused. His reasoning was curious. In an email response to me, he asserted that, quote, tests of the type you've talked about are very old hat, unquote, and that the current status of remote viewing, quote, goes light years beyond that which your letter suggests, end quote. But if Brown's psychic powers are as advanced as he claims, shouldn't he be able to pass an elementary test of these powers with flying colors? Brown also declined my offer on the grounds that he did not, quote, want to drag Emery into my other activities and that he is rigorous about not mixing what I do elsewhere with what I do at Emory. Mm. Angelo, like he had already brought this up on it, like of his own volition. Like when you hear him on Coast to Coast AM, um, it is quickly mentioned that he is, you know, a professor at Emory University. Well, yeah, so it's not- he's, the, he's the type of guy that is very pr- proud to flaunt his his alphabet soup at the end of his name, right? He's the type of guy who would probably want to be called Doctor. Oh, of course, of course, right? And uh, kind of obfuscate his doctorate. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Corny Brown and Hellbops a little bit more. So Corny Brown quickly latched onto the idea of Hellbop um, and and the Hellbop news, and he and his Farsight Institute began to claim in late November 1996 that the craft trailing Hellbop was actually sentient, not just a mini railways, but sentient and capable of proper communication. Angelo, sentient how? Like it was not piloted by sentient people, but it was actually like All organic. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So December sixth, the December sixth, nineteen ninety six bar- broadcast of Coast to Coast, Art Bell welcome Chuck Tramick back on to give an update on the kerfuffle. So joining him, and we talked about him before because he co-wrote a book with him, is Mister Community himself, Whitley Strieber. You know, so Chuck stays online for a half hour and talks a bit about the publicity his photos have gathered or generated. Then the three of them refer to the mainstream press's desire to debunk uh, Chuck Schramick's photos in a derisive manner, as if to say that trying to apply earthly scientific logic to this situation, these series of photos is not going to work. Well, because if you do, yeah, because if you do, then it'll prove that it's incorrect and that really hurts them. So after uh, Schramick hangs up amicably, uh, Struber begins trying to link this supposed craft with popular ufology. Positing that this could be a continuation of the sort of visitation the Earth has been receiving for the last 50 years, right? So at this point, Willie Strieber is buying into the idea of the sentient craft that is communicating somehow. Yeah, I mean, look, who knows? Uh, at that time, they probably thought in a few years, there'll be disclosure. <laughs> and if here only we are. Yeah. If only they knew. Yeah. 
So the interesting here, the interesting thing here is that Streber is never definitive about what he thinks about the craft is, right? So he uses words like possibly, likely, should, etc. And more common place some doubt. Yeah, exactly. Um, placing some doubts to the absolute veracity of his underlying claims, right? So he believes in this somewhat, but is not willing to stake his life on it, right? This is a common way that folks in the paranormal realm can continue to espouse whatever pet cause that they favor at any given moment, right? They can never go to absolutes. Everything here is relatives. Coulds, shoulds, maybes, kindas. Um, so while we do applaud the scientific community for this sort of talk when it comes to the research stage, right, the hypothesis setting stage of the yes. experiment, uh, when viewed through this specific paranormal lens, it feels like folks want to create some plausible deniability in case things go south. Well, it's the easiest way to, like I said, hedge your bets and yeah. get out of things if it's proven completely incorrect. Like take Ed Dance, for example, right? Like so many times uh, he had been completely, like proven completely wrong on air and then just kept coming back with more things to say, right? So once again, entertainment, not information. Exactly. January 16th, 1997. Art Bell welcomes Chum Whitley Streber, yes, the communion guy, and Courtney Brown to debate the claims of the authenticity of the purported Hale-Bopp companion photos. Previously, Brown claimed that he and his team at Remote viewed Hale-Bopp three to four times and stood behind the assertion that there was indeed a spacecraft in the comet's trail. Brown also claimed that a top ten university astronomer had given Brown several rolls of film and also claimed that the craft was giving off radio signals. During the episode, they go back and forth for a while, Brown doubling down that this was, in fact, a spacecraft. As time continued during several episodes, Art Bell eventually was able to reveal on air that Brown's photo was a fake. The top 10 university astronomer was a no-show. Bell reversed course on what he believed, and by early March 1997, he's fully on team, no spaceship. But still, Brown doubled down on his assertions about the damn spaceship. Assertions that when the comet actually passed in March 1997, revealed themselves to be wrong. There was no spaceship. There were no sentient beings hanging out in the comet's trail. There was just space dust, slowly breaking off from the comet, littering the cosmos. A hoax is a hoax is a hoax. Art Bell finally is on team, does not believe, after this whole kerfuffle after um, understanding, and this is like early March 1997, right? So Art Bell on his show explains what is going on here. So he comes like clean, so to speak, right? And how do the Heaven's Gate people react to this? Does this change their point of view in that? It does not. And that's the problem, that, right? Is that yes. the information has been out there for so long that now they're um, extremely laser focused on this activity, on the Hellbop comment, on the sentient craft that is going to take them to the next level at this point that any other contrarian talk doesn't work at this point. They're too far in. So even if it comes from the person that initially got them down this path saying, oh, you know what? We were wrong about this. Uh, we take it back. The toothpaste was already out of the proverbial tube and they're off to the races. So, and like this is not confirmed or even suggested at all, but let's say there's an example where uh, a member could have claimed that a walk-in happened to Art Bell oh. at one point, right? And okay. had spoken this craft into existence and then left, right? So I'm not seeing that like, it happened or anything or that specific kind of um, incident was discussed, but there is that kind of thinking that could have 
been the bridge between what was occurring and this deniability now that is being created um, by Bell and and listeners on the the no spacecraft team um, and Heaven's Gate itself. Yeah, they were just like you said, laser focused. They figured yep. out this is where they needed to be and what they needed to do, and they did it. Exactly. Unfortunately. So starting on March 19th, 1997, Marshall Applewhite and his adherents began filming their final exit interviews with each of the 39 members. So I mentioned this before. You can watch some of these on YouTube if you're so inclined. So Applewhite went up first and mentioned that they were indeed planning on boarding the ship Hidden Hill Bob's Tail and that suicide would be their method of doing so. Once again, the soul leaving their body, their broken down vessel. Slowly but surely, each of the 38 members uh, also filmed their interviews. And like I was saying, they didn't look glum or sad or defeated. Each look to the future, to the next level as a natural progression to who they were and what they were going to do. And you've left some of these in the show notes for people to peruse. If exactly, I didn't. Want to, I, I don't I did. think I want to watch them, but yeah, like, exactly. So that's why I don't want to, I'm not going to insert any clips or anything. So if you want to head to the show notes and watch some of them, you definitely can. Also, Apple White's crazy eyes um, it, during his address. I mean, I have watched his stuff. Yeah. Um, so if you want to watch that, definitely go ahead. He is a very captivating speaker in that he's very even toned. He does um, not blink, or he no, blinks it's very ethereal the, in infrequently. So sometime in March 1997, the Heaven's Gate website, which is, by the way, still functional, and you could find an interesting story about the webmaster in our show notes, uh, posted the following update. Hailbot brings closure to Heaven's Gate. Our 20 years of classroom here on planet Earth is finally coming to conclusion. Graduation from the human evolutionary level. We are happily prepared to leave this world and go with T's crew. It's pretty ominous. It's, it's ominous, almost. Yeah, and this is, this is a hard part for me to read, but... I feel like it, it bears mentioning the method by which they decided to pass, right? So to, to kill themselves, members took phenobarbital, uh, which is an epilepsy medication, mixed with applesauce or pudding, and washed it down with vodka. And then they laid down one by one, fixing plastic bags around their heads as to asphyxiate themselves. Investigators found a $5 bill and 75 cents in quarters in each of their, pops, uh, in each of their pockets. And there are two possible reasons for this. One... Um, a former member calling himself Sawyer said it was a reference to a Mark Twain story in which 575 was the cost to ride the tail of a comet to heaven. The other is a humorous way of indicating that they left uh, this existence entirely. The five bucks covering uh, vagrancy laws and the quarters in this case in case they need to use a payphone. So, as I mentioned in the intro, they had double bags with clothing neatly packed next to each other. And there's a certain irony in having such a neat setup that in all likelihood will never be picked up by the owner. So, like, packing for a vacation that will never come to pass, ultimately. I mean, for them, it was going to, right? They were leaving their bodies. They were going to end up on this sentient ship and fulfill their deaths. Yeah, and, and, and fulfill their destiny. Yeah. So it's this really weird situation where you're asked to believe that these people understood that their bodies to be vessels, but then also preparing their vessels for departure. Yeah. It's and very interesting that way. How did Art Bell feel about all this, right? Because the news got to him for sure. Eventually. Yes. Yeah. Um, so our bell posts, you know, um, Heaven's Gate suicide made his uh, line of thinking clearer. He says, I started getting a lot of messages saying, Art Bell, you killed 39 people. It's important to understand that the only person who ever said that there was a spacecraft following Hailbomb was Courtney Brown. So how much fault should be placed at Art Bell's feet and how much should be placed at Courtney Brown's? Well, he facilitated it. Yeah. Right. He was the conduit. He was the person who brought Courtney Brown on the air. He's the yeah. man who let... Uh, uh, Ed Dames run rough shot on his show multiple times until he kicked him out eventually. And I mean, when he disavowed all this stuff, it was, I guess, a little, a little too, too little too late. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think in Art's defense, he did call Courtney Brown on this early. Like, and, and like this was a progression January, February, into early March when finally mm-hmm. he was like, I do not believe. Um, he did call Courtney Brown on the fake images before the mass suicide occurred, right? So, like, points to him. Courtney yeah. Brown, on the other hand, kept going. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was an ardent believer in the notion of the Hale Bop trailing spaceship, even after no ship revealed itself. So, um, I found a June 1997 New York Times article quoting him as saying, I stood by those results. He said coolly, I still stand by them. I still I can't believe that he would, like, just double down like that. It's bizarre. It's cold. It's weird. I guess he feels like his, I don't know, his credibility was online, even though it wasn't online, because clearly he was wrong about the spaceship, right? Because he could have just claimed, oh, the spaceship is cloaked, the spaceship has disappeared, whatever, right? Um, but no culpability um, from him, right? None. And then I think m- the most complex thing to then look at, right, is how much culpability do we accord these 39 people who now resort, you know, who now reside in some other form of the universe, right? It's very tricky to answer. So Angela, I want to ask you, like, if it were not Hale Bob, would another contentious spatial body have been Heaven's Gate's inciting incident to happen later on? Like, it's just, I'm not quite sure had it not been Hale Bob, they were just buying their time. Yeah. They would have found another... a different reason. They would have yeah. found a different reason. This was a, an easy way for Applewhite to explain what he wanted to do. And facilitate them leading to this mass suicide. But this was coming. This was in the plans no matter what. I also feel like the Millennium could have played a a role in whatever they did. And once again, this is me speculating. And I'm not speculating like like joyfully. Like this is a a fun fictional story to tell. But I do feel like there was a lot of doomsday predictions surrounding the new Millennium. They might have done it on Y2K, right? Right, and that's that's kind of what I was thinking is that were it not to be Hellbop or another celestial body, it could have been Y2K, right? So I think as time continued, if the cult had still been alive, um, it would have gone one of two ways, right? So either Heaven's Gate would be splintered, fractured, and its numbers draining into the single digits, or like I said before, they would have located another celestial body to rally around, or the new millennium Y2K. A different right? reason, yeah. It didn't have to be a celestial body. I mean, for them, it was great because it fit into their UFO narrative. This was, I feel like this was handed to them on a silver platter to be able to use as a reason to commit suicide. Yeah, and I think it's very hard to know exactly how a non-Hailbop situation would play it out, but the tragic truth at the end of the day is that it's all just hearsay, right? Unfortunately, things happen in the way that they happen, right? So 39 people believed so strongly that uh, the course, the, believing in the course that they had set upon themselves, that they believed that suicide would free their bodies to ascend, right? So the idea here being, once again, the soul leaving the vessel. So, I, you know, wherever they are, I hope they're in a place that is better than this island Earth at the end of the day. And it's, it's hard for me to think about watching those 39 people, knowing what I know, knowing that they're just about to leave. Yeah. You know, that they're about to do um, three waves of unfortunate passings. And then what happens, of course, is that a, um, a Heaven's Gate associate receives these videotapes on the 26th. And that's when the news starts breaking out. So not everybody that was associated with Heaven, Heaven's Gate was in the 39th. No, exactly. So there were former members, um, technical people like the webmaster, right? So there's that yeah. insane, crazy Vice article I'll link to in the show notes about the Heaven's yeah. Gate webmaster still running the website uh, decades later. But yeah, so unfortunately, you know, this is it, right? It's how do we look at mainstream? And because, like, let's be honest here, like, Art Bell is mainstream. He was reaching 15 to 20 million Definitely. people a night. 
Um, so, like, how does mainstream media play into the role of a belief system? What is the responsibility of both the broadcaster, the person speaking, the guest, the ecosystem in which this is created, and then the adherents themselves, right? It's like this weird ecosystem where all of them existed in a specific point of time. Definitely. We don't know what would have happened without Art Bell being involved, but I, no. I'm i pretty confident to say that it would have still happened. Maybe yeah. later? Yeah. But it would still happen. Like I said, like uh, after Bonnie Nettles' passing in 1985, there's more of a fatalistic view, right? Like Marshall Appleby was definitely um, looking for a measure of control that he didn't have previously when he and Bonnie were, were co-chairing Heaven's Gate or, you know, any of the other names that they used for for the cult before that, right? Brian, tough one. so this was a, 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 tough one. a long time in the making, too. Yeah, I, I know I've I, wanted to talk about this for a long time, and there's so much that I didn't mention in the episode that we could have mentioned, too, but then it's a thousand different rabbit holes to fall into at the definitely. same time. Um, you know, and more of the philosophical stuff about their belief system and how that was, uh, how that came to be incorporated or refined over time. That is an episode unto itself that I'm not prepared to do right now because yeah. I'm not a theologian. No. I, I can do, you know, I'm, you just I can play do one on a commentary. podcast. Yeah, I could I could do the social critic stuff, but I don't necessarily know if I can do the deep dive on um, the belief system, theology, comparing Bible verses to what they actually like believed, what they retrofitted in order to make it work in the Heaven's Gate doctrine, right? So it's a bit difficult to sort of <laughs> want to tackle that too. You'd need a whole serial type uh, podcast to discuss that over. Like, yeah, the and I know there was a seven or eight serial episodes. type podcast that came out in 2020 or something. I don't, I didn't pay any attention to it. Um, honestly, I just those I are your favorite to, podcasts. Yeah, yeah. No, I stick to stuff like, you know, interviews, the exit interviews in particular were yeah. a tough watch. Um, stuff from of the time, right? So that time article from 97 that I found, the quote from Courtney Brown from June 1997, the episodes of Coast to Coast AM that I listened to um, from like October onwards, October uh, 96 to, to March, April 97, like during and post this situation happening. And obviously, you're too young to remember this happening at the time. Like, you weren't listening to Coast to Coast at the time. No, but I was listening to the news, right? I was yeah, you, Yeah, you knew what happened. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I remember the Definitely. the news broadcast about it. I remember the tarps. I remember the yeah. Nike shoes sticking oh, out. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. The definitive image, probably, of that, right? Yeah. Pretty horrifying. Yeah. So, two things. Um one, we're switching gears for December. We did this last year. We're going to do this again this year. We're doing Ho Ho Horror. So we're doing a series of um, horror movies, but also maybe not horror movies uh, for December. We'll see. Um, yeah, we'll, they... we'll still talk tech, and then the paranormal segment will be the Ho Ho Horror. Exactly. Movies. Some of them are not strictly horror, but more so the horror of being alive type of stuff. Yeah. I did, I did watch Violent Night last week. Yes. It's not really a... I thought it was a horror movie, and then you told me, no, it's more of an action movie, and you were correct. correct. Yeah. Great. Not at all what I expected. Loved it, though. Yeah. I, I, I'm I due for a rewatch. I saw it in theaters last year. I loved it, and I'm going to rewatch it again. Um, second thing is, Angel, where can people find us? Well, the easiest place to go to, we have a, a website run by a webmaster, and it's www.doubledensity.net. And there's a form you can fill out. You're showing I know, your age right there. I know. I'm just. I'm saying it because I'm in the context of 1997 oh, with I the webmaster. Right. Okay. It's part of the thing, but it's doubledensity.net. There's a form to fill out. It'll send us an email, and uh, we may discuss the email on the show. We may reply back to you. We may do nothing. Who knows? <laughs> we, <laughs> no, also, we leave us back. a review. Yeah, and leave us yeah, a review. Yeah, we try to reply back as much as possible. I know that Kevin from last week had emailed us a response and um, didn't fit into this special show, this special episode, right? So it No, but next week will be that. more back to normal. The, yeah. the text segment will be there, which we often do our feedback in. 
Exactly. Depending on what right. it is. So there's that. And then, yeah, double density uh, podcast gmail.com is a great place uh, to email us. And then yeah. also, we're still on the hell site, double underscore density. And you also Not find us long. over on uh, Instagram at double density podcast, where I actually post stories, Angela, that you cannot see. So it's even better. Yeah, I, I don't see. I've been doing my white guy in a car stuff recently. So that's been nice. Oh, great. More, so yeah, more, I don't feel like I want to do that. a funny. I feel like I don't want to do a funny tune in next week right now. I just want to no. sort of take a, a, a moment to reflect on the fact that like 39 people believe so strongly in something and they believe that this was the only path forward. And uh, yeah, a bit of a downer, but I feel like we'll telling the story was important. And we'll be back with our more regularly scheduled episode next week. Angela, I will, my friend, I will, I will definitely see you there. See you there. <laughs>